Hey there, it's Story Story Late Night, the positively shameless black sheep of the storytelling family. At Late Night, we strip down to raw truth. And just like that stripper last weekend, we need your tips. Go to paypal.me backslash inc and tuck those dollar bills in. This season, we are taking sci-fi themes from B-movies to triple X, with tales told live on stage without notes or inhibitions. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. Now, beware the blob. A splotch, a blotch, be careful of the blob, held on June 30th, 2020 at the Adults Only Visual Arts Collective and live streamed to our audience. Here are our heroes, featured storytellers Nathan Eggleston and Beth Norton. Since 2020 is basically a sci-fi flick in IRL vision, it's late night stories. Nathan Eggleston. One of my earliest memories is going to grandma's house. Grandma took us into the back room and brought out this big chest of costume jewelry. Big, ugly turquoise things with silver, well, fake silver stuff, rhinestone jewelry, ugly, gaudy gold stuff. But there was one necklace inside that whole collection that caught my attention. It was a small silver chain with a star in the end and three or four little smaller chains that made it look like a shooting star. I picked the necklace up and my eyes must have been giant. They don't get very big anyway, but my eyes must have been giant and grandma grabbed the necklace and I distinctly remember her leaning over and attaching the necklace around me and I could smell her Estee Lauder cologne or shampoo, what was it? Perfume, I could smell her Estee Lauder perfume as she put the necklace on me and I was just so excited to have this necklace. It was the best thing ever. A few days later, I was back on the playground. I was in kindergarten. We were playing tag out in the yard, and I ran up to one of my friends after the game, and I said, see, look, we're the same. I was beaming, I was so excited. And he tugged on his ear where he had a little earring, and he said, yeah, we are. That earring was a stud with a star and three or four little tiny chains that made it look like a shooting star. And he was my friend, and we were the same. And that was the first time I remember feeling that way. A few days later, a few years later, I was out on the playground again, this time playing dodgeball. Not the circle kind, the two squares kind, Greek dodgeball. And I was good at dodgeball, really good at dodgeball. And I was playing dodgeball and we were going at it and as we got further along and I was still in, the kids started calling names and some of the names didn't make sense to me. I didn't know what they were, but I won the game, and that was all that mattered. But those words that they used, they stuck in my brain. And a few hours later at recess again, I found myself out on the, on the playground, and I was out further on the field. There were heels up on, on the edges of the, the playground, and I, my fingers were running through the grass, and I was thinking, well, am I what they say I am? Am I a faggot? I don't even know what faggot means. That moment broke me, and it wasn't because I'd done anything wrong. It, it just felt like there was something oozing out of me and something ugly and shameful, and I, I didn't know what it was, and I ran away. It was about 15 miles to my house, but Grandma's house was right in between, almost seven miles between the two, my, the school and my house. So I ran and I ran and I was crying and I was upset and I didn't know what was going on and I knocked on Grandma's door 
red-faced and sweaty and gross, little 10 or 11-year-old, and she brought me inside the house and told me to go wash my face. And then I came into the kitchen, and there was cake, and everything was okay. All growing up, I was a performer. I was in my first musical in the second grade, and then through elementary school, I performed, and in uh, middle school, I was in show choir, and in high school, I was in all sorts of different musical theater and dance and all sorts of things. But I remember going into that first day of school, and that word was still in my brain, and that question was still there. Am I a faggot? And I walked into a cappella class that very first day, marched in, and I remember looking across the classroom and seeing a boy, and I said, he's going to help me answer that question. And a few weeks later, he did. And a few months later, he had my heart. But every Sunday, I would go to church. I grew up in a Mormon family. And I would go to church, and that feeling of oozing dread and fear and shame came back again. And I didn't know how to deal with it. And it was ugly. And it was this monster. And I was trying to escape him. But he kept coming after me. But every Sunday, we went to grandma's house. And we had family dinner. And there was cake. Grandma was the epitome of a post-war mother. She was a working mom. She was fiercely independent. And a few years after her and her husband got married in Blackfoot, Idaho, well, actually, they got married in Idaho Falls, but they were from Blackfoot. They moved down to California with cousins and aunts and uncles. And I couldn't go through a, a year without them telling me about, oh, yeah, so-and-so, that's your cousin in my little town in California where I grew up. And that was growing up. We would come to Idaho every single summer. Idaho was this magical place. We got to go to Island Park. We got to go visit my family in the dairies in, in uh, Blackfoot and Kessler's Market there. And it was this amazing place that just had this sense of wonder. And I remember distinctly, on more than one occasion, being back in the back of our family station wagon or Suburban, my face pressed up, at, up against the glass, watching my cousins as we drove away and thinking, I can't cry in front of them. But I would always cry when we crossed the border and we left Idaho. As I went into high school, I continued to perform. And on one particular occasion, my grandfather and grandmother came to see me perform. I was in The Music Man, and I was Harold Hill. And my grandfather gave me a big giant hug at the end of the performance, tears in his eyes. He was a burly Navy man who had been a, con uh, uh, a co contractor and carpenter his entire life. He gave me a big giant hug, and he said, I didn't think I'd ever see something so beautiful. And right over his shoulder, I could see my grandmother with her blonde hair up and her beautiful curls and her big giant smile and a twinkle in her eye. And at the end of the performance, she said, hey, let's go back to my house and we'll have some cake. So we went to grandmother's house. A few years later, I started to get ready to go for my mission. And that monster was still there. And I needed to find a place for him. And if any of you have ever seen Book of Mormon, the musical, yeah, that's my life story, literally, in Africa, trying to turn it off and it wouldn't work. But I was good. I was a good missionary. I was a good Mormon. And one particular time, there was a fight that I had with another elder on the mission. He was from Utah. 
I don't know what we were fighting about, but it wasn't important. And he called me that word again in the middle of the fight. And I stood up and I turned away and I went to my room and I slammed the door. And I got down on the floor and pressed my back up against the dresser and I was just so angry and that, that oozing ugly monster came back again. And it wasn't because I'd done anything wrong, it wasn't because I was breaking any rules, it wasn't because I was being bad, but I was caught and I was angry and I was scared and I was ashamed and so I punched the wall and I broke my finger right here. And I still feel that pain every time the weather changes. When I got back from my mission, I went to BYU, and my family was very proud that I was going to BYU. I got in on scholarship on dance and musical theater, and I was good at what I did. And I was there for almost three years when BYU called me up and said, hey, we need you to come on into the office. And so I did, and I sat down there, and they said, we're so grateful, and you've been such a wonderful asset, but we can't have you here anymore. And I was expelled. Not because I broke the rules, not because I was doing anything wrong or broke the law, but because of who I was, a faggot. And that monster came back again, and that sense of shame and that oozing ugliness was there, and I didn't know, know, know what to do, and I didn't know how to escape it. And I shut everybody out. And then one day, my Nokia brick, you all remember those from the early 2000s, rang, and there was a number that I didn't recognize, and I answered the phone, and it was Grandma. And she had to tell me some stories, and she always had really great stories to tell about my cousins and my family. And she said, you should call your mom. She wants to talk to you. And know that I love you no matter what. At that point in time, my family had moved back to Idaho over in Meridian. And I knew that coming back to Idaho, things would have to be different. Me and my monster, we would have to get along in a different way. We would have to see each other as something more than enemies. And so I found a home here. And as is normal in Mormon communities with an early 20-something, everyone started asking, so when are you getting married? Well, I don't know, was generally the answer. And one day my grandmother asked me again, who are you dating? When are you getting married? And I responded, I'm not allowed to. And she looked at me and said, what do you mean? And that was how I came out to my grandmother. She looked at me and she said, okay, well, I love you no matter what. And she gave me a big giant hug. A few years went by in Idaho and I had a job and things were going well. And I was working in an agency and my boss called me in and she said, hey, we're so grateful for all that you've done here, but I'm afraid your lifestyle just doesn't match what we're looking for anymore. And that ugliness and that shame and that monster came back again. Only this time it wasn't my fault and I wasn't the monster. And I was that fourth grade boy again and I had to run away. And so I did. I decided to go to New York. Only this time when I left New York, I, or this time when I left Idaho, I wasn't the one crying. It was my family and my grandmother. I went to New York and I found myself. Me and my monster got gay as fuck and I was happy. 
I got to connect with my queerness. I got to connect with myself in a way that I was never able to before. I got to love every ounce of me, every oozing ounce of me. And it was wonderful. And then one day, midsummer, I got a phone call from grandma and she said, congratulations. I said, what are you talking about? You can get married now. The Supreme Court had just recently announced marriage equality. Any consenting adult could marry any other consenting adult, no matter what their gender was. And that was a beautiful moment for me. And my grandmother took the time to call me and tell me congratulations and that she loved me no matter what. Being in New York was an amazing experience. It's an incredible city. And I was on top of the world until COVID. Within 10 days of the lockdown in New York City, I lost every single contract for the entire year. Within a month, my savings started to wane down. Within two months, I couldn't stay in New York. My dog had died, my money was gone, I didn't know what to do. I was broken. And that sense of oozing and shame and ugliness came back because I didn't know what to do. But there was always Idaho, and there was always grandma, and hopefully cake. So I packed up all of my stuff and got into a car and I drove across country. And as I came to the Idaho border, that ugly oozing monster and shame and ugliness came back again and I found myself sobbing, dreading coming back to this place that had rejected me so long ago. A few weeks later, I was in grandma's kitchen helping her fix dinner. Over the years, it's been more difficult for her to do a lot. And on the television, the news started playing. The Supreme Court had just announced that the Civil Rights Act included LGBTQ Americans and that I was protected at work, no matter where I was. And all of that fear and that shame and that ugliness was there again, but this time it was being erased. And the tears welled up in my eyes and she looked at me and she said, what's up, what's going on, honey? And I, I looked at her and I said, everything's gonna be okay. Last week, we were on a drive back from Twin Falls. We went down to visit her brother, and after a few hours of two 80-year-olds telling the same stories back and forth again, I was ready to go home. But it was a pleasant drive nonetheless. And Grandma turned to me and she said, so, do you have a girlfriend? The question stung a little bit because she'd forgotten me and my fabulous gay monster. But I politely answered, no, that's not for me. When are you gonna get married? That's not for me either. She stopped herself and she gasped and she said, oh, that's right, you're gay, right? <laughs> yes, I am. So when are you gonna get a boyfriend? I don't know. By the way, I'm single. If anyone would like to find me, I'm available. Um, and uh, my hand was on the steering wheel, my other hand on the center console and she, put her hand on mine, riddled with arthritis and her wedding ring still on there from her husband who died about 16 years ago. She patted my hand and she said, well, I love you no matter what. And in that moment I knew everything was okay because there was grandma and my fabulous gay monster and there was always cake. Beth Norton.
Um, during the crafting of this story, I learned that 80% of the movie The Blob uh, is just these kids trying to warn the town about The Blob, like Chanel mentioned. Um, but the, the town had to see it for themselves, right? Doesn't it always happen like that? Um, when I tell people that I grew up in foster care, sometimes I'll get a response of incredulity. One time a woman even said, wow, you'd never know. Uh, like, how would you? Uh, we, we don't bear a universal mark. Um, it could be the teeth. Uh, mine are relatively straight, and you don't see many kids in foster care with braces. Um, another response I'll get is just uh, sort of looking away or a diversion of the eyes, which I take to mean uh, as a signal of disbelief, which uh, can hurt. I first went to live with Rosie and Larry uh, when I was nine. Um, before that was a woman named Mary who uh, had decided not to adopt me a couple weeks before the adoption was finalized. Before that, it was my maternal aunt Sarah, um, her husband and son. And before that, it was a succession of foster homes. Before that, it was my uh, maternal uncle, his wife, more cousins. And before that, it was my mother who had subjected me to violent abuse, neglect, and then abandoned me at three. So yeah, I was a little fucked up uh, by the time I joined that nice Christian woman's uh, home and who had decided that she also could not take care of me. Um, but luckily, just up the street, there was a foster home that took uh, girls under guardianship, which is a little bit more permanent than foster care, but a little uh, less permanent than adoption. I uh, remember the first time I met Rosie and Larry, I sat at their kitchen table with my social worker in a sort of interview style. Uh, they were, I realized later it was more like a sales pitch. They were extremely nice and they um, broke out their photo albums and they showed me pictures of how they would go out fishing on their boat uh, and they regaled me with stories of this one time when the boat was surrounded by killer whales. And I thought, well, I like whales, so why not? Plus my favorite movie was Free Willy at the time. And um, do you guys remember Free Willy? It's uh, when the angry foster kid, Jesse, yeah, he gets taken in by an indigenous man, frees a killer whale uh, to the theme song of Michael Jackson, Will You Be There? In case you guys haven't realized, this story is kind of hard to tell and <laughs> might be hard to listen to, so I did listen to that song on repeat while I was writing it out and I might break into song throughout the story, just to break the tension. Um, but anyways, um, I, I decided to go live with Rosie and Larry. I was not given a second option, and uh, also I was a child. So, uh, But I uh, found myself the youngest of five girls in a home, and um, I realized very quickly this was not the happy place I had been sold on. I remember one of my first mornings there, 
Uh, my eldest foster sister got in a big fight with Rosie and Larry, and she was slamming doors and screaming, and it was really stressful. I got up from the breakfast table, I went in the bathroom, I threw up my eggs, I came back. I told Rosie that I had thrown up, and rather than pull me into her arms and hug me um, and say it was, everything was okay, she uh, said that I was just being dramatic and trying to get attention for myself uh, and to go sit down and finish my breakfast. Um, we had uh, chores that we did every week, and one week I had the kitchen, uh, and so I was scrubbing the floor uh, on my hands and knees with a, with a towel and a bucket, straight up Cinderella style, and I was underneath the table, and I remember Larry leaning down, and he smiled and he said, you're the best girl we have for cleaning the floors. And my heart just swelled with pride. They pitted us against each other. They used competition to get us to do better and work harder. They um, uh, openly lamented that they couldn't beat us. Spare the rod, spoil the child was one of their favorite sayings when we were acting up, because obviously we were so spoiled. Uh, I had two people I trusted during this time in my life. I had my maternal Aunt Sarah, who I had uh, lived with before and who had been there um, in some way, shape, or form throughout my life. And I had my counselor, Betsy. These were liberal women. They were the kind of people who believed that children are also people. And uh, my, I trusted my counselor, Betsy, because when I first started to go see her, she didn't make me talk about everything that had happened. Um, I couldn't talk yet about the abuse at my other aunt and uncles or all the foster homes. Um, and she didn't make me. Uh, I was a child. She would just watch me while I played in a sandbox, occasionally laughing at something I said. She would make us tea, and sometimes she would take me up to the corner store to get a Haagen-Dazs ice cream bar. Hmm, Haagen-Dazs, Haagen-Dazs, you are my friend. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> Uh, I just got thrown, I was thinking about Haagen-Dazs. <laughs> um, I think I was 10 or, oh, I loved Betsy because, uh, also because she would make fun of my social worker with me, um, uh, which I enjoyed because that woman was not a nice woman. Uh, her name was Mary Ellen and she was from the South and she had an imposing presence and she would say things like, now Beth. Uh, aren't you just so lucky that Rosie and Larry are your foster parents? Now, I didn't believe I was particularly worthy of anything, but I knew I wasn't fucking lucky. And uh, she'd say things like, um, uh, they take you out on that boat of theirs fishing? They even take you on vacation with them. Now, how many kids get to go, how many foster kids get to go on vacation? And she did have a point there. A lot of foster parents actually kennel their foster kids. Um, but we got to go to Disneyland, the Lawrence Welk Resort, uh, Disney World, and North Carolina. So, bah, 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 bah. Uh, yeah. I, uh, I think I was um, about 10 or 11 when uh, the blob began to wake me up in the morning. I oozed into my full-sized uh, bunk bed and pressed its uh, softness against my leg, wrapped itself high around my middle, and nuzzled into my neck. It had curly white hair that grew from its sagging ears 
and a perpetual mustache that covered a thin upper lip. Larry wore nightgowns, and he was getting into bed with me in the morning. I didn't know how I knew it was his penis that was pressed against my leg, but I did. And my body would stiffen, and I would, con I would be confused because I wanted the love, uh, but I felt uncomfortable. And I would lay there, and I would count the seconds to see how long was appropriate before I could jump up out of bed, exclaiming, I have to pee, and then run to the bathroom where I would be safe. I eventually told my Aunt Sarah about this, and she told my social worker, who then called Rosie and Larry, who were furious with me. We all three went down to the department for a special trip, and Mary Ellen took us into a small room where there were three chairs, like maybe one of us shouldn't have been there. Mary Ellen sat to my left and Rosie to my right. I was instructed to sit on the floor. Rosie was stiff in the face, looking down at her nose, um, lips tightly pursed. Across from us, the blob sat. I could see the curly white hairs coming out from his nose, the pride and anger oozing out of him. Mary Ellen made it very simple. She pointed her finger in my face and she asked, now Beth, did you lie when you said that Larry gets into bed with you in the mornings? Now I don't remember a lot of my childhood, but this moment freezes in time and it stretches to impossible lengths, longer than a typical response. I knew I had a decision to make that would alter the course of my life forever. And I weighed the consequences. This was my chance to tell the village about the monster. But what would happen if I did? Would I be in trouble? For how long? Would I stay there? Would I change schools again? Would I lose my friends again? What would happen at the next place? What kind of monsters would be there? What would happen to my foster sisters? Where would they go? So I gathered my courage and I looked at Mary Ellen and I said, yeah, I lied. I was a child. The blob was not Larry. The blob was every home, and it was every time somebody didn't believe me, and it was, it was the system, and there was no way I was getting out of it, at least not anytime soon. And so I decided to deal with the monster I knew, and I was a child. Larry never got into bed with me again. But uh, Rosie started to wake us up in the mornings and she would come down. She had a bad back and so she would complain that she had to come down the stairs because every morning to wake us up because Beth was a liar, which was kind of true. I mean, I was still there because I was a liar. <laughs> and uh, 
Uh, I lived with them for seven or eight more years until just before my 18th birthday when they kicked me out on the porch with all of my stuff and they told me I wasn't part of their family anymore. And years later, after the cocoon of college, when I was trying to figure out who I was and what had happened to me, I, I uh, would look back on that memory and I would beat myself up about it. I would, I would say maybe if I was just a little bit more brave, then things would have been different for me. Like maybe I would have had a family. And they adopted three girls after me. What if he touched one of them when nobody was watching? And after years and years and years and years of therapy of so many different forms, I was able to look at that story in a different light. And I was able to see that I had, as a very young child, I had, I had made a huge decision in a split second with all of the information I had uh, and the time that I was allotted. And I kept myself as safe as I possibly could. Uh, it wasn't my job to save the village, but sometimes it still feels like it is. I, uh, I didn't save any whales either, but uh, there was this one time uh, with Rosie and Larry where we were fishing and, um, and the fishing wasn't so good, but the weather was great. And so we were just cruising. We had our legs up uh, in the sun and we were eating salty lays and um, all of a sudden, the boat was surrounded by this great huge pod of dolphins. Like as far as the eye could see, they were jumping in front of the boat and behind the boat and next to the boat. They were so close, I could reach out and touch them. I could look them in the eyes. And in that moment, I, uh, I knew that it wasn't so difficult to imagine a reality that was so different from mine. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsors, Boise State Public Radio and Radio Boise. Our summer season sponsor is the Over 19 Adult Shop. Our theme song was composed by Ned Evett. Support this storied program, get tickets to our live show, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Story Story Night. Also, check out our YouTube channel. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story.